Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is William E. Nelson. William is a legal historian and a professor at NYU. He is the author of numerous books, including The Roots of American Bureaucracy, The Legalist Reformation, Marbury v. Madison, and his most recent book, which we are discussing today, E Pluribus Unum, How the Common Law Helped Unify and Liberate Colonial America. Bill, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So this is a history of colonial American common law. So I guess my first question is, what is the common law in general, and what in particular is distinctive about colonial American common law? The common law in general is the body of law, and body probably ought to be plural rather than body. Bodies Um, of law. I will say the bodies of law administered by three English royal courts, the Court of Common Pleas, the Court of King's Bench, and the Court of the Exchequer. Uh, Why three? Like everything else in uh, English history, it's an accident. Uh, The three courts were founded to do what they needed to do at different points in time. The body of law is recorded in England in judgment rolls from each of the courts. Uh, And I've never really looked at those judgment rolls, but I think what they contain is the names of the parties, the cause of action that they chose to bring, that is the writ they chose to bring, because you didn't just walk into court and say, I, Bill Nelson, have a dispute with Chris Kaufman. I had to choose a writ, which was the instrument that served process on you. And I had to choose the form of action that I wanted to bring. So if I were claiming that you beat me up, I would sue you uh, in trespass for an assault. If I claimed that you owed me money from some transaction, I would bring a writ of debt. And I would have to produce either evidence of the transaction or a sealed instrument. If I claimed that you owed me money on the basis of some promissory note, I would bring an action of case on a note. And there were over 100 actions that I had the choice of bringing. Uh, And the important thing about common law is that I had to choose to bring the right action in order to sue you. And then we'd go from there pleading. You might just plead, I'm not guilty, or if it's a writ of a case on a promissory note, I never promised, and that's known as the general issue. And we then just present the whole case to a jury, which goes into the back room and decides guilty or never promised or not guilty and promised. Uh, and at that point, then, 
that's what's going to be recorded in the judgment roll. At that point, then the court will give judgment. Nelson wins for, you know, X number of pounds or Kaufman wins and gets his costs. American law starts out very differently than that. And it starts out very differently in different places in the 1730s and I mean, in the 1630s and 1640s. So in Massachusetts, the essence of law is the word of God, the Bible. And you go into court and you, you know, I go into court and I say, Chris Kaufman owes me so much money and uh, buy whatever portion of the Bible he's obliged to pay that. And we bring this case not before judges or before a court, but before the local congregation. And the minister presides over the trial or hearing, and then the full members of the congregation. And in early Massachusetts, not everybody is a full member of the congregation. Only men can be a full member. I guess women can be too, yeah. Uh, but you have to have had a conversion experience to be a full member of the congregation and report that to the congregation and have them admit you to full membership. The full members of the congregation then decide the dispute among everybody in that community uh, who attends that church. In Virginia, it's just a simple, Kaufman owes me $10. There's a hearing before a, a, a local court. Maryland, early on, adopts the common law. Not 100% clear why it adopts the common law. But I think, and this is what I say in the book, uh, Maryland is a dissenting Roman Catholic colony. And... Uh, I think Lord Baltimore, who's the founder of Maryland, understands something that William Penn, when he founds the Quaker colony of Pennsylvania uh, 50 years later, also understands that the way to protect religious dissenters is to give them a lot of property and hence a lot of wealth so that they are the economically dominant group in the community, even if they are no longer the religious majority of the community after the colony is founded and settled. And the best way to protect property once you give it is the common law, because the common law in England up until the 17th century was more concerned with protecting property rights than with anything else. Contract is not unimportant, but contract and commercial transactions become increasingly important as England develops commercially and manufacture and, and industrially during the uh, 18th and 19th century. But up until the 17th century, the source of wealth in England is land, and the common law is very good about protecting property rights and land. So I think that's why Baltimore adopts the common law early in Maryland. At least that's what I say in the book. So you're you're talking about them adopting the common law and and the common law being really good at protecting property rights. So when the colonies start adopting the common law, I, I'm understanding that there are you know at, at least two important parts of of the common law. One is 
by definition, it's a very procedural system. Right. So when they adopt the common law, they're adopting a set of legal procedures, procedures, but they're also adopting a lot of substantive rules that have grown up with these procedures as well. Or is it, are they pretty much only adopting the procedures? Because the, well, the protection of property much, rights are c- probably born, uh, born of precedent, right? They're pretty much adopting the procedures, but each separate writ has its own procedures that are available or not available, depending on the writ. Can you say something about that word? It's not like a normal English word for the listeners. So what what is a writ in common law exactly? Well, the writ is the piece of paper. When I want to sue you, I go to the court clerk and I get a piece of paper, a writ. And a writ is simply in early English history, it's it's a written document. But this writ is the thing that I serve on you to order you to appear in court, or there are three ways of commencing a lawsuit. One is to arrest you. So the writ might be a piece of paper directed to the sheriff to arrest you and produce you in court on a certain day. Or the writ might be a summons simply telling you to appear in court on a certain day. Or the writ might be an attachment of some property. Say, you own a horse. And the way I get you to appear in court is that I send a writ to the sheriff telling him to seize that horse and inform you that if you want to make any claims for the horse, you got to be in court on a certain day. That's the first part of the writ. The other part of the writ is to identify what action I'm bringing against you. Am I suing you in trespass for an assault? Am I suing you in case on a promissory note? Am I suing you in debt on some indebtedness based on something other than a promissory note? And there are uh, these three do not exhaust everything. Just They're just three examples. Now, within debt, for example, so in modern American law, when I claim you owe me money, we have a contract of some sort, I claim you owe me money, I have to prove that you owe me money because of something I did in consideration of, in return for, a promise on your part to pay or something you did. Say I sell you my car. In modern law, I claim that I gave my car to you in return for which, or in consideration of which, you promised to pay $30,000. Now, with these English writs, the pleadings are different and the defenses are different. If I bring suit on a promissory note, A, I have to present the physical paper in court, the note with your signature on it, and you can prove that the whole transaction is void for lack of consideration. You signed that piece of paper not knowing what it was, and I gave you nothing in return for it. And that's a defense you have. On the other hand, if I sue you in debt, I don't have to prove any piece of paper unless the debt is a debt on a bond. And you do not have a defense of no consideration. Say say that you've done a bond rather than a promissory note. The bond is more technical, and uh, we needn't go into the differences between them and only get more confusing. But let's say (laughs) I see you want a bond. 
you cannot prove as a defense that you gave me that bond for something that I failed to do, for, and you know that there's no consideration for the bond. That isn't an available defense in a writ of debt, though it is an available defense in a writ of case. So what the substantive law is, there's no substantive law about whether always in entering into a contract, there has to be consideration, something given in return for what the, the plaintiff is trying to enforce. There's no substantive law on that. There's procedural law. If I bring a writ of debt, you can't offer a defense of no consideration. But if I sue you in case, you do have a defense of no consideration. So yes, there's substance, but the substance depends upon the procedure I've chosen to bring or upon the procedure that you've chosen to use by the way you plead defenses. I've given you the simple case of I sue you on a promissory note you plead never promised. That's the general issue. But there's special pleading. You can plead all sorts of particular individual specific things, though you can't always plead them. You, know, you can only plead them in certain writs. So did all the colonies, when they adopted the common law, did they mm -hmm. all adopt it in the same fashion well, let me, now let me no, no, no. let me get back now to uh sure, so sure we're looking at the first three colonies that are founded is massachusetts which a bunch of new with a bunch of new england spinoffs and legally they're all pretty much the same in terms of the common law and then virginia and maryland maryland is the only one that starts with the common law now there's one other colony that's important uh, New Amsterdam, and it's not following English law at all. It's following the law of the city of Amsterdam. It, by 1664, when the English conquer New Amsterdam and rename it New York, there are four legal systems in place. There's the Puritan system of New England, the common law system of Maryland, Virginia, which I'll come back to in a second, and Dutch law in New York. Virginia early on adopts the common law voluntarily. It doesn't have to be imposed from above. Uh, Virginia adopts the common law and it adopts the common law because Virginia is initially founded as a corporate entity controlled by the Virginia Company in London and everything is owned by the Virginia Company. The Virginia Company goes bankrupt it can't raise enough money to keep the colony afloat. And at that point, you got a bunch of people, several thousand people living in Virginia who were kind of on their own. Uh, and they've got land and they got their backs to cultivate the land. And they got a product to sell to England by 1625 when the company goes bankrupt, tobacco. But they need capital. They need to borrow money. And English lenders are willing to lend them money, but they want to know they're going to get the money back. And they feel assured they'll get the money back if Virginia adopts the common law, the writs of debt, uh, case, etc. Get, we'll get them their money back. And so Virginia turns to the common law in order to promote investment from England. Uh, 
And so by 1660, Maryland and Virginia are both following common law. Further north, it has to be imposed on New York. Frankly, I mean, I, I, E Pluribus Unum is a summary of four books, The Common Law and Colonial America. And this is all in detail worked out in the book on, in the portion of the Common Law and Colonial America on New York, and it's summarized in E Pluribus Unum. Uh, the Dutch don't particularly like the common law. Frankly, the Dutch have a better legal system than the English do. And the uh, Dutch are quite resistant to adopting the common law. And England goes rather slowly in imposing it. Uh, it imposes it on Manhattan in the 1670s. By 1700, it's pretty much imposed it on the Hudson River Valley, which is the sort of the center of Dutch settlement, uh, never fully succeeds in imposing it on Long Island. And Long Island is settled largely by English Puritans, although it was part of New Amsterdam. But slowly and gradually, the common law is imposed by the crown. And the vehicle for imposing it, we ought to come, we'll come back to why the crown is imposing the common law. The vehicle for imposing it is the legal profession. The way it works, especially in New York, on the three-vessel fleet that is capturing New York City in 1664, there are not only soldiers, but three lawyers. Why do you put lawyers on a fleet that is conquering a Dutch colony? And the reason is that you're going to appoint those lawyers to a number of high positions, but you're not going to pay them much. You're not going to pay them much because Charles II, the then English king, doesn't have a lot of money. When Parliament brings him back after the English Civil War in the 1640s and 50s, Parliament brings him back to the throne in 1660. It gives him some money, but doesn't give him a lot of money. And anything else, he's got to take care of by himself. So what he does is send these lawyers over to New York, give them high positions, and tell them that they can, in addition, represent private clients, including private clients before the institutions of which to which they have been appointed. There's no conflict of interest set of concerns similar to modern conflict of interest. It is okay for me to be representing somebody before the court on which I sit. Every court will be a multi-member multi court. So when I'm representing someone before the court on which I sit, I will recuse myself from sitting on the court to represent them. But of course, there's still connections. And if I sue you, and we're going to have this case heard by this court X, you're going to obviously want one of the uh, members of that court X to be your lawyer if you can get him, or I'm going to want him to be my lawyer if I can get him. And the way of imposing the common law, since the king has no bureaucracy, the king has no army, all he's got is these lawyers. And so he creates courts, and he appoints people to them, doesn't pay them much, lets them go out and represent people. And to the extent that the lawyers who are doing this are lawyers who are trained in English law, 
they are very happy to be applying English law in the colonies. But to the extent that I get one of the lawyers who's trained in England, uh, you get a local guy, because most of the members of colonial courts are not trained in England, they're local guys, uh, who maybe have gotten one or two books on the law and they've read them. God knows what they got out of them. You get one of those guys, and that guy isn't going to be terribly committed to applying the intricacies of the common law. That guy cares more about winning cases, and sometimes he does. The fact that some members of these courts are royal appointees trained as lawyers in England doesn't mean that they always win. They win probably more often than they lose, but they don't always win. And that means there are other elements entering into the system. Now, I can probably best explain a lot of this by going to Massachusetts and then back to Virginia. Massachusetts, as I say, uh, until uh, 1685 is governed by Puritan law, by biblical law, not by the common law. That isn't to say, I mean, these guys are English. John Winthrop, the first governor, is trained at the Inns of Court in England. So, I mean, some of these guys know English law. If it's convenient, they'll use it. But the essence of law is Puritan law, is the Bible. The crown is not happy with this. The crown wants to impose the common law on Massachusetts. But how do you do it? How do you, when you've got no army, you've got no bureaucracy, how do you make a colony? Because Massachusetts is fairly intensively settled, even early, of maybe 50,000 people. How do you make a colony of 50,000 people 3,000 3, miles away in a world where transportation and communication is by sailing ships that take several weeks to cross the Atlantic? How do you make them follow the common law? The answer is only very gradually, slowly, and trained in the common law migrate into Massachusetts and begin practicing before the Massachusetts courts. But even then, the Massachusetts common law turns out to be very different from English common law for two reasons. One is a lot of the Puritan heritage is preserved. There's legislation. Well, I've got to go into a little political detail. The Charter of Massachusetts is revoked by the king in 1685. The king dies that year and is succeeded by his brother, James II. Charles II was the king. He dies in 1685, is succeeded by his brother, James II. James is Roman Catholic, which does not make him popular in England. The English are Protestant, and they want to remain Protestant. Uh, when James has a son in... 1688, who will inherit the throne from him, Parliament throws James out of England and invites uh, William III and his wife Mary to become king and queen. They issue a new charter for Massachusetts in 1692, which provides for royal appointment of the judges, or the governor of Massachusetts is going to appoint the judges, rather than what had been the system up until 1685 of having the judges elected by the 
full church members in Massachusetts. So there immediately is an element that these newly appointed judges for uh, bringing the common law in. The problem those judges have when they try to bring the common law in, they don't try really try very hard to bring the common law in. The problem they have is that without lawyers, and there are no common lawyers in Massachusetts in 60, as late as 1690, and one appears in the 1630s and he's sent back home. Without lawyers who know the, the pleading system, it's pretty hard to impose the common law. Gradually, lawyers move in. But the other thing that happens by legislation of the new general court under the new charter in 1692 is a statute saying that previous Massachusetts law will apply unless it is specifically changed by the general court, the governor, and the privy council. Uh, so to change Massachusetts law, you have to get the elected general court to vote to do it, the royal governor to sign it, and then the Privy Council can veto it if it wants. The Privy Council does not veto this legislation, which means that old Massachusetts stuff will remain without going into detail. By legislation in the 1670s, Massachusetts juries have the power to determine the law. In today's world, judges instruct the jury on what the law is. After 1672 in Massachusetts, they do not. They might, but it doesn't matter because the jury is not bound to follow their instructions. Today, if a judge thinks the jury in rendering a verdict did not follow its instructions, the judge will set the verdict aside. Uh, the 1672 legislation explicitly prohibits judges from setting verdicts aside. So that in Massachusetts, juries have the final word on what the law is. So when you talk about substance, I'll bring my writ of case against you, or I'll bring my writ of debt against you. And somehow you'll sneak before the jury the argument that I did not perform what I was supposed to perform in return for you owing me money, in consideration of you owing me money. That is, you're pleading lack of consideration to a writ of debt, which common law you can't do. But the Massachusetts jury couldn't care. If the Massachusetts jury thinks that uh, I've screwed you by not performing my promise, or not doing what I was supposed to do in return for your promise to pay me, they'll return a verdict for you. So that law in Massachusetts, in a sense, there is no substantive law in Massachusetts, or for that matter, the rest of New England. The law is what individual juries say on a case-by-case -case basis. Was there much precedent for that level of jury independence back in England? None. So juries, there is an important case in England in 1670 in a criminal case. William Penn is convicted of, uh, I'm not exactly sure what, it might be sedition. I'm not exactly sure. Penn is a Quaker, and he's convicted of some moderately serious crime, or he's charged with some moderately serious crime. And the judge instructs the jury in England to convict him. And 
the jury ignores the instruction. The foreperson or the foreman of the jury is then hauled into court for violating his oath as a juror to follow the uh, law stated by the court. And the Court of Common Pleas issues a writ of habeas corpus saying that a juror cannot be convicted for obeying his conscience rather than obeying the law. So there is that one case, and that one case is uh, cited a lot for the proposition that the jury ought to be free to control the law. But in all, all through the South, juries do not determine the law, judges do. It's only in New England and to a limited extent in New York and a limited extent in Maryland that juries determine the law rather than judges. And in any of those cases besides Massachusetts, was it made explicit that juries had that level of independence? Oh, yeah. It's, it, okay. it's explicit throughout New England. And to some extent in New York? New York is very different. It's not, it's not so much explicit. Trial judges in New York can set aside verdicts. But if they don't set aside a verdict, appellate judges in New York do not have power to set aside the verdict. When the case goes up on appeal, appellate judges are just bound by what's in the record. And the record is very sparse and does not give them any basis for setting aside jury verdicts they disagree with. Okay. Uh, in, in Virginia, an appellate judge can set aside a jury verdict. So the important thing about New England and to you know, to a lesser extent, uh, New York. New York is a hybrid. To a lesser extent, New York and Maryland. The important thing is that local juries actually determine what the law is. They probably, in ordinary transactions, probably know what the common law is, and they think of the common law substantively rather than procedurally. Uh, they know what the common law is in ordinary transactions, and presumably they typically apply it. But we don't really know, since the jury verdict is, you know, reached in a secret back room, and all they come out and say is guilty, not guilty, promise, never promised. Where they they never give reasons mm -hmm. uh, for why they reached their verdict. Now to go back to Virginia, I don't know when this happens. But by the 18th century, at least in Virginia, the governor does not effectively get to appoint the judges. If a seat becomes vacant, say, in the county that Williamsburg is in, that county court, the judges of that county court, nominate some other individual to replace the individual who left the seat or you know died and the seat became vacant. And the judges send that recommendation up to the governor, that nomination to the governor, and the governor has no choice but to appoint that person. If the governor there, I've got a couple of cases in Virginia where the governor refused to appoint the person, and what tended to happen is that the whole court resigned and the county was left without any government since the court was the government. So the, the, the governor had no choice if he wanted the county to have a government and be governed. Because the governor had no army either. I mean, he maybe had uh, 20 men sitting in Williamsburg to protect the governor's palace. Uh, but he had no army to send out to the county to 
make the people of the county do something. So the current members of the county court name who they want to fill the vacancy. And as a practical matter, the governor has no power except to accept that nomination. And I said, New York is a hybrid. Local judges have power to set jury verdicts aside. Appellate judges do not. Local judges are appointed by the governor on nomination from the members of the assembly representing that county. So again, there's a kind of localism inherent in the process of choosing governors, I mean, of choosing uh, choosing judges. Uh, A seat becomes vacant on the county court. The leaders of the county, whoever that are, and it's most they are, and it's mostly judges, but maybe the representatives in the colonial legislature get together and decide who should be nominated to fill that vacant seat on the county court. And at that point, the uh, local assembly members agree to nominate X, and the governor then appoints X, which again means that. Kind of like in Virginia, the local people control who's on the court. I should say one other thing about Virginia. In Virginia, the appellate process is very weak. uh, And anything can go up to the general court that sits in Williamsburg. And if you ever go on a tour of the Capitol building in Williamsburg, they show you where the general court sat. But local courts are quite free, and they do it with some frequency. You ignore what the general court tells them to do. So the general court will sometimes reverse uh, local decisions of the local courts, and the local courts ignore the reversal. They just uh, so local courts are in effect in charge of Virginia government, and in New England, local juries are in charge of New England government. In New York. If local juries and local judges agree, they're in charge. If local judges disagree with the local jury, they can reject what the jury has done. But if they don't reject it and the case goes up on appeal, the appellate court has no power to uh, reverse a jury verdict. Hey, everybody, this is Chris Kaufman, and I just wanted to take a minute to thank everybody so much for listening to my show. This has really been a dream come true for me to be able to speak with scholars that I admire and read books every week that I'm always excited to read. This is still a small show, still a new show, still growing, and I appreciate everyone listening so much. If you want to help me grow my show, the simplest thing you can do is to write a review, just a short review, a sentence or two on Apple Podcasts, or just recommend it to a friend. So I'm just reaching out to you to beg you humbly on my knees to please do that. I'm going to try not to bug you too much about it, but here I am bugging you. Anyway, back to the show. So you're, you're laying out all these ways in which the common law started to kind of morph out of royal control in in, in New England. The juries are having a large say, very independent right. in determining the substance of the law. In Virginia, the the crown and the royal governors are losing the ability to appoint judges. And in New, in New York, it's a little bit of a hybrid. So that, that's kind of an answer to the question I wanted to ask, which is, why did the British crown want so badly to impose common law? I mean, maybe it's just from a modern standpoint, but it seems like the common law is 
more designed to encourage flexibility of the law and local go- local governance. Uh, but maybe that was never the intention. It just kind of slipped away from the crown. I mean, no, I mean, I think the crown had no other choice. When you don't have a bureaucracy, when you have no agencies, no administrative agencies, all you've got is all you've got to govern to govern a colony. So, you know, you've now got the power to appoint a royal governor in Massachusetts or Virginia. But just think about it. What is that governor going to do with no police force, no army, and no bureaucracy? What, what do you do? And I think the crown turns to the common law because that's how it governed England. It's a common tradition to appeal to. Yeah, I mean, that's how they governed England, but there isn't this history of there's a kind of underlying history especially in new england but also to some extent in virginia a history of anti-royal governance i mean you know from if you if you go back to virginia in the 1620s when it's starting to really be settled uh once tobacco becomes the crop it becomes clear that you can't have a colony concentrated in one locality. Uh, You need land to grow tobacco and you need constantly new land to grow tobacco because it exhausts the soil very quickly. And so Virginia starts spreading out enormously in the 1620s. So you're the royal governor. What do you do to govern the place? I mean, remember an important thing you need if you want to govern a place in depth is knowledge of what's going on. You know, if, if, you, if you want to govern New York State today, one of the things you got to do is collect your taxes. And one of the things you need before you can collect taxes is knowledge of who's making what kind of money and what kind of businesses are there that could be taxed. These guys, don't, the governors don't have that. They have no one to gather that knowledge. They have no. They have no system. They've not got no bureaucratic system for taking that knowledge and recording it. They've got nobody in uh, the governor of Virginia has nobody in Williamsburg. Go down and see Williamsburg now. There's no. There's no place where there are. Go to Williamsburg now or go to Sacramento or Albany now. What you find in Sacramento and Albany are these huge offices where information is coming in and it's being recorded. Just think of how do you how do you collect taxes from people when you don't have withholding? Uh, think of how the withholding system makes income tax collection feasible and how difficult it is uh, to collect taxes without that withholding system from the people who are just making the money uh, and don't have to report anything, especially in a world where Congress refuses to provide the internal revenue agents to go out and investigate what those people are doing. And It'd be so, virtually impossible. Yeah. And I mean, we're finding that now when the Republicans in Congress don't provide IRS people. Uh, it turns out that people who are not making salaries uh, are not being honest with the federal government. So back in the colonial era, 
There's no withholding system. There's no nothing. So the royal governors, you know, they have a pretty house to live in and they got some a couple of soldiers and pretty uniforms patrolling around the house, but they have no real power. Uh, because among other things, they have they have no real information. And then even if they had the information, there are some interesting uh, examples in New York in the 1760s where they try to go out into the uh, into the Taconic region, which is east of the Hudson River, uh, and it's a fairly sparsely settled mountainous region. They try to go there. Uh, send because they've got an army in New York City. They try to send that army up there to do some things to enforce some laws, and the army gets beaten. In the revolution, of course, the army gets beaten. Uh, uh, you need, uh, you know, in in Vietnam in the seventh in the in the nineteen sixties in Afghanistan in the 20, 2010s, the army got beaten. Uh, it. Turns out you need a huge amount of force and a huge amount of cooperation from some key individuals in the local population in order to know who's doing what bad things to you and then capturing them and doing something to them. And the governors just don't have that. And the crown doesn't have that. Parliament is not going to give the king money to... Uh, enforce the law in the colonies and then start collecting taxes in the colonies. Uh, the, the, the parliament wants to keep after 1660, parliament wants to keep the English kings relatively impotent. It's an important element of protecting freedom in England. And so when parliament won't give the king money to build a bureaucracy or support an army, how do you enforce things? The answer is you do what you do in England. You have you have this these royal courts that go wandering around, offering people the opportunity to file lawsuits. They have to file them in accordance with old procedures. Juries play a major role even in England in deciding who wins and who loses. And juries, in effect, play a role in enforcing court judgments, because it's their judgments that are being enforced. That is, you, you know, you use law to create order and procedures, but you then use local people to maintain order and government. You, you say the juries play a role in enforcing the judgments. Is that just because the, the juries represent the decision, a, a decision that's representative of the local community, so it right. has a little bit more weight? No, the juries, the juries, Render decisions that are representative of the local communities. Okay, and and, and you know the uh, local communities. I have one great case. I wrote a book on Plymouth County years ago, and uh, there's one great case there where a guy has suit against him commenced by his arrest, and. He wants to get out of jail. The court isn't going to meet for another two months. So he's going to be in jail for two months unless he can somehow make bail. Well, how do you make bail back then? You go to your you go to your neighbors and say, help me. Uh, uh, we know each other. You can trust me to attend if you promise that I will attend. 
local people give me bail. And he does this through the local church. And the answer he gets back from local people is, we know you're a sinner. We don't trust you. Spend the next two months in jail. And that's the whole way that enforcement is working. One has to, one has to have, has to depend on local people, has to have cooperation of local people in order to function in colonial society. And uh, local people know you. And if they don't think well of you, they're not going to help you. How much variation was there among the colonies in terms of how free judges and juries felt to disregard legal decrees from the crown and royal governors or even from colonial legislatures? Well, royal governors tend not to feel free. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm more mean the, the, the judges and the juries. The juries in, I'd say, where juries have control of the law, they feel quite free. Massachusetts juries in particular feel free. Do they feel free to disregard the, the like, the yeah. well, Massachusetts legislature as well? Uh, the Massachusetts legislature doesn't do very much. Okay. The colonial legislature back in the 1630s, 40s, as late as the 1670s, does a lot. Very concerned but with regulating the, personal uh, virtue. Under the new charter in 1692, the legislature does does very little in the way of enacting general of enacting law. It will fund the government. It will fund counties. It will set up new counties, change county boundaries, things like that. But it doesn't do uh, it. You know, at one point it passes. The general court passes legislation making burglary and robbery capital offenses. And whether this is ignoring the legislature or just doing what they think is right, burglary is defined as breaking and entering into a house for the purpose of committing a crime therein. And Typically, in burglary cases, I don't know. I mean, I don't know of a burglary case in which this is not true after the legislation has passed. The jury finds that the defendant is not guilty of burglary, but is guilty of breaking and entering and stealing. That's to avoid having to sentence to to death a burglar. The death, yeah. Yeah. Massachusetts juries, juries generally, are very unwilling to sentence anybody to death. They they rarely enforce the death penalty. I mean, you know, a, a capital crime all the time in Massachusetts is adultery. And juries will find the couple guilty, guilty of lying in bed together naked, but they didn't have sex. It's not like there's a witness. Not like, well, I mean, they can be a witness. <laughs> But uh, they don't believe the witness. Okay. But it's only a capital crime because the... Well, that's, I mean, that's just an example of it. They don't... Sure. New England juries in particular, but juries generally uh, don't don't want to impose the death penalty. I, I would say that's true to some degree, even on African-American defendants in the South. They're hesitant, they're hesitant about... Juries are hesitant about 
even putting slaves to death. Those slaves will be executed. If a, if a slave is accused of raping a white woman, he'll probably be put to death. But juries are hesitant even in putting slaves to death. They just don't like the death penalty. Relative to colonial legislatures and royal law, how did the common law treat slaves and free blacks and Native well, Americans well, in general? Come, let me give you now. Let me give you now. Before we do that, let me give you willingness to uh, violate English law, sure, uh, or English policy. So, I give you a couple of examples. One example is Irving against Craddock in Massachusetts in 1761. The customs collector seizes a ship, accuses it of smuggling, takes it before the local vice admiralty court. The vice admiralty court is sitting with all English placemen as judges and no jury. And the vice admiralty court condemns the ship for smuggling. At that point, the owner of the ship sues the customs collector for trespass for seizing his vessel wrongly illegally seizing his vessel. And the case goes before a local jury, before the local county court. It goes before a local jury, and the judges charge the jury. This is the local judges charge the jury that they should return a verdict for the ship owner, a big verdict for the ship owner, because the people are tired of what the Customs collector is doing, trying to collect customs duty duties and will not accept it any longer and will rise up if uh, a verdict is rendered in favor of the customs collector. And the jury returns a verdict in favor of the ship owner. Uh, the customs collector then appeals to the superior court appointed by the governor and pretty much consisting of judges loyal to the crown. Those judges charge the jury that this case has already been decided by the Admiralty Court and the Admiralty decree is binding on them and therefore they must return a verdict in favor uh, of the customs collector. And the jury returns the large, same large verdict in favor of the ship owner. At that point, the governor consults the judges, and they all agree this is what Massachusetts law permits. There's nothing we can do about it, uh, though the effect of this is to make it very difficult to enforce the smuggling laws. If the customs collector, when he seizes a ship, is going to have that ship, is going to have a case brought against them for the value of the ship and the cargo or more. And so they're quite willing to uh, uh, disobey English law. Now let me go to Pennsylvania, the, what the Supreme Court does in Pennsylvania. Now, Pennsylvania is not a royal colony. So the governor is appointed by the owner of the colony, the Penn family. Uh, and while they're pretty loyal to the crown, they're not totally loyal. So one of the ways in which you can have a suit commenced against you is by arrest. And then you're in jail unless you can make bail. So Parliament passes legislation during the French and Indian War prohibiting the arrest of members of uh, the royal military. Uh, somebody in Pennsylvania brings a suit. 
uh, against a member of the royal military by having him arrested. The army goes before the highest court in Pennsylvania and says, Parliament has said you can't do this. And the court says the plaintiff won't have a fair, adequate chance to recover his judgment that he deserves to recover unless unless the soldier remains in jail. Case decided, statute of parliament ignored. This is uh, how free do they feel now? You know, I can't give you numbers. The records just don't enable you to do that. But, but it's common it's enough. Tough. It's common enough. Especially uh, if it's if if the the general sentiments of the community are against some kind of some kind of crown policy, you're probably going to see disobedience to the policy. Right. Even <laughs> if it's dressed up to not right. quite look that way. Right. And. Let me let me say one other thing because this is an important part of the book that we may not get to, and then we'll go, we'll go back to the slavery issue. And it's okay if we don't get to everything. People have to buy the book too. Yes, uh, <laughs> but I do want to get to this because this may be the most important thing about the book. Starting with the Zenger case in New York in 1735, which a lot of people will know about. Um, I don't want to talk about it, but starting with that case. The legal profession has been gradually increasing in the colonies. Initially, as I said, the lawyers are appointed to do royal jobs, and that becomes the instrument through which they gather clients. You know, I'm I'm an agent of the king for this. Come, I'll represent you. We'll get a good deal from the king. By the 1730s, that's beginning to change, and lawyers have to make their money in other ways, often by representing people who want to litigate things with the crown rather than work with the crown. And over the course of the next 30 years, a bar develops, a group of lawyers develop who are rather regularly litigating things with royal governors, with royal officials of one kind or another, a kind of we'll call them an opposition group of lawyers, appears. And that opposition group of lawyers gradually develops a set of arguments, and they're in contact with each other across colonial boundaries. Even in the Zenger case, the guy that's representing Zenger is a lawyer in Pennsylvania, not New York. These lawyers are in touch with each other, and the ideas go back and forth between the colonies. And by the 1760s, they've developed what I'm calling a kind of, I'll call a kind of constitutional argument of independence. That, uh, yes, we're colonies of Great Britain. Yes, we're part of the British Empire. We don't want to leave the British Empire, but we are self-governing. We govern ourselves and we govern ourselves on the basis of what's good for us and what we need. So when Parliament passes the Stamp Act in 1765 to effectively tax the colonies, there's a lot of opposition to it, including from among these lawyers. So I've I've skipped over a lot of territory, but these lawyers bring cases in New England, Virginia, and South Carolina claiming that the Stamp Act is unconstitutional. And they win. Uh, local judges say the Stamp Act is unconstitutional. The, the, uh, a Virginia County Court, for example, uh, when the issue is presented, they say 
Uh, the Stamp Act doesn't apply here. It's null and void because it's unconstitutional. I, I won't go into the South Carolina cases, the clearest case where uh, in a civil suit between two parties, the Stamp Act is relevant and the court by a 4-1 vote concludes that the Stamp Act is null and void and doesn't apply uh, and gives judgment for the uh, party who's acting in violation of the Stamp Act. Can I linger on that for a second? You know, in modern parlance, when a law is found unconstitutional, it's it's relative to the United States written constitution. Is that the language they used back then? This is obviously no, before. Because the constitution is the British constitution. Which is unwritten. Which is and- unwritten. But do they, uh, so they don't they don't use the word unconstitutional. They just say it's it's null and oh, void. It's do. against traditions. OK, they do. They don't say it's against tradition. They say the Virginia court is very explicit. It's unconstitutional. And the South Carolina court doesn't use that word. But they say that enforcing the Stamp Act will upend the constitution of the colonies. I think it's the same thing. Massachusetts. So, I mean, James Otis is a key lawyer in this. He argues in 1761, he loses, but he argues in 1761 that issuing writs of assistance is unconstitutional. And he uses the word unconstitutional. He loses. Then in 1764, right before the Stamp Act, he writes a pamphlet, uh, a big, important pamphlet, The Rights of the British Colonies Asserted and Proved. It's reprinted everywhere. Uh, And in that pamphlet, he has an extended argument about why acts of parliament can be unconstitutional, violating the unwritten norms of the English constitution. So we've got these stamp act cases in 1766, basically, in South Carolina, Virginia, and New England, holding the stamp act unconstitutional. I argue in the Marbury and Madison, Marbury against Madison book, the first state case after the revolution holding something unconstitutional or arguing that something might be unconstitutional, they end up holding it constitutional, but they give reasons why it might be unconstitutional, is a Virginia case from 1782. That's the first time we see this in print in in official reports, cases holding legislation or talking about maybe legislation is unconstitutional. And the question is, where does this crazy idea come from? I'm arguing that Marbury against Madison is not important. In the, in the Marbury book, I'm arguing that Marbury against Madison is not important for holding the 1789 uh, legislation, giving the court the power to issue writs of mandamus. The Judiciary Act of 1789 is not Holding that unconstitutional is not important. What is important is Marbury changing when that doctrine of judicial review will be used. In the Stamp Act cases, in many of the early state cases, holding legislation unconstitutional is used in highly political contexts like the Stamp Act. Marshall says in Marbury, we're not going to do that. We're only going to hold legislation unconstitutional when it is clearly against the law. And we will never decide cases politically, and we will never decide political cases. And I think Marshall is 
when he's holding the Judiciary Act unconstitutional and making it clear that the doctrine of judicial review exists in the United States, trying to say, yes, we have it, yes, we'll do it, but we aren't going to do it in political circumstances. And that then raises questions today about political decision-making by the current Supreme Court. It might be that uh, Dobbs, for example, is wrongly decided because it's entering into politics. It might be that Roe against Wade in the first place was not really a legal decision, but was a political decision. And the Supreme Court has a commitment not to get involved in those cases. So one of the important potential takeaways from a pluribus unum, because I'm talking in the last quarter of the book about the development of these constitutional doctrines that the colonies are, yes, members of the British Empire and want to remain members of the British Empire, but are self-governing. And the idea of that is something constitutional. Um, So one of the takeaways from the book might be that, yes, this idea of unconstitutionality is not a new 19th century American idea. It's an old idea. But it was just shaped to be a less politicized idea? Yeah, yeah. It had to be because of the opposition to Marshall and the Supreme Court that would have developed if you had decided Barbary the other way. Now, you want to ask me something about slavery? Yeah, I'll just ask the question again. So relative to the colonial legislatures and to royal law, how did the common law in colonial America, how well or poorly did it treat slaves, free blacks, Native Americans, basically all the classes of people that that tended to be not treated well by law until, you know, relatively recently. It depended. Nowhere does the, I think I'm prepared to say, nowhere does the law treat Native Americans fairly in any sense. I mean, they will give, they will give Native Americans a trial by jury and they might find they might find the Native American not guilty of some crime that uh, he or she has been accused of. But if it came, for example, to any claim about land, the Native Americans are always going to lose. The colonies were about taking Native American land and moving west. And that's true from very early on. And uh, I don't think I've seen a single case of litigation between a white man and a Native American over land where the Native American wins. And is that generally the case even when, is that the case in maybe rare circumstances when Native Americans made any attempt to live amongst the the colonies? I I understand that they're trying to take tribal land, but. That's hard. That's, That's awfully hard to tell because it's awfully hard to tell whether someone who's trying to assimilate, some Native American is trying to assimilate to the colonies is a Native American. Okay. Yeah, it might not show up in the court it records. It wouldn't show up in the court records. Okay. Uh, so that's impossible to tell. But certainly uh, a, a dispute against a separate Native tribe, they're always going to rule in favor of the colonies and, and yeah, just yeah. confiscate the land. Yeah, I mean, they'll make treaties saying, you you know, you, you tribe, you have this land, and uh, then... 20 years later, they'll violate the treaty. If it's necessary to kill Native Americans to get the land, they'll kill them. Land is 
extremely important, and white men have the view that Native Americans don't know how to use it. And then what about the treatment of free blacks, for instance? Do uh, they have standing in general in, in trials? Yeah. Yeah. Now, as I say, that will vary. So let me give you let me give you a couple of examples. So rarely does Parliament intervene. An important place where Parliament does intervene in 1732 or 1733, I don't remember which. Parliament passes a statute making slaves the equivalent of land for purposes of debt collection. So let me say what that means. I sue you for a million dollars. I doubt, I don't know anything about you, but I doubt that you're sitting with a bank account with a million dollars of cash in it. But depending, I don't know where you live either, but if, if you're living in metropolitan Los Angeles or metropolitan San Francisco, you may well own a house and that house may be worth a million dollars. And land is obviously an important, valuable commodity. Land is the second most valuable thing that slave owners own. Roughly in the 1720s, 1730s, slaves owned by planters becomes more valuable than land because they can always get new land by moving west. But it's hard to get new slaves. You can, uh, the planter can help this along as many planters do by uh, visiting the slave women in the uh, uh, in their headquarters at night. But it's becoming expensive to buy slaves. And there's a limit to how much you can increase your slave population through reproduction. So the uh, slaves by probably the 17, by around 1730, become a more valuable asset than land. Now, so I want to sue a planter. Or let's say I want to sue you. You're a planter in uh, 18th century Virginia, and I want to sue you. You clearly don't have cash. You owe me a lot of money because you never have the cash to pay me. Uh, I'm sending stuff, goods to you from England all the time, and you owe me a ton of money. Um, I thought that I could collect that ton of money from you by seizing the land you own and selling it, but your land is no longer worth that much. Your slaves are what are really valuable. Well, it turns out that Virginia has had a series of pieces of legislation saying that if I sue you for debt, I cannot sell your slaves to collect that debt. The Virginia legislation from 1690 or so on is constantly changing. It's rather imprecise. But much of the time, at least, Virginia prohibits the sale of slaves for a creditor of yours to collect debts from you. And when slaves become the most valuable item that planters own, Parliament passes legislation making slaves uh, subject to debt collection by saying that it would be treated as land. Okay, but this is an act of Parliament, not a development of this the colonial of common Parliament. law. Right. Now, now, what's interesting about this, in places where judges determine the law, even in Virginia, judges are obeying that legislation and allowing the sale of slaves, requiring the sale of slaves, 
typically of people who have, of, of planters who have died, they usually wait till death has occurred. And then, uh, you know, then, then the debtors debts have to be worked out at, at, at death. There isn't enough property uh, or cash to pay the debts off. So they then authorize the sale of slaves and judges in, in Virginia and South Carolina routinely do this. Juries in New England do not. I've got a case in New England where a collection of debt is going on. The creditor seeks to sell the slaves and pleads the act of parliament as a basis for doing it. And the case goes to the jury and the jury does not award the sale of the slaves to pay the debt. We don't know why. It could be that uh, this is always the problem with jury verdicts. It could be that the jury is finding that the debtor did not own the slaves. And obviously, if you don't own slaves, you can't be they can't be sold to pay your debt. They're not your property. But Southern judges routinely, routinely allow the sale of slaves to pay debts. New England juries do not. Another thing is, here's here's a weird set of cases. As I think I mentioned, fornication is a crime throughout colonial New England. Maybe I didn't, but you, it did in the book, for sure. It's in the book, yeah. So in Massachusetts, black man and a black woman who are not married have sex. And in Virginia, this is, if the bull and the cow in Virginia have sex, that's fine. Who cares? You get a calf out of it. And this uh, is how they viewed slaves, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you get some veal chops out of it. In New England, the court says, you know, these are people. The wrath of God will come down on us if they have sex as well as if white people have sex with each other when they shouldn't. So we're going to prosecute them for fornication. Next case that comes up, the couple says, well, we want to get married, but they're two slaves owned by two different people. And the court says, well, you've got all the natural propensities that people have, your people, and we're going to prosecute you if you have a relationship without getting married. So, of course, we've got to allow you to get married. So in uh, Massachusetts, at least, I don't want to say New England generally, in Massachusetts, at least, uh, African-Americans can get married. That then involves certain assumptions about can you sell one of them off to Virginia and separate them? I think not, uh, though that isn't, that isn't clear. Uh, what about can you separate, you know, what's their relationship to their children? So black people are human, and this is all a matter of development of local judge-made law. Making slavery, I imagine, like more less and less tenable in Massachusetts as this body of yeah. law is developing. Yeah. Who wants to, you know, who wants to be charged now with having a slave and a slave's child? Uh, you know, maybe they can't live together. One of them is your slave and one of them is mine, but they can they have to be permitted to get together at times and they'll have children and one of us is going to be responsible for that child because they aren't they can't be responsible for the child they don't have any assets did it um, ever come up where there might be say a free black man and a slave black woman have a child and the the free black man brings suit over parental rights like relative to the slave owner I don't know if that specifically happened, but I can I can just imagine no. these kinds of I'm conflicts. Sure that, I'm sure that 
I'm sure that there are cases where free blacks and slaves marry. And I'm sure that the issue exists as to who's going to have custody of the child and uh, who's going to be responsible for the child, uh, etc. And it just, I mean, it, it, the recorded cases don't give us enough information, but it does seem that slavery and slave family life becomes an entirely different phenomenon in Massachusetts from what it is in South Carolina. I think that's a that that set of examples is probably good, and we're running short on time. So let me move on to just checking with you. Are you, is there any other projects, upcoming projects you're working on right now? No, what I'm mostly working on now, I think these stamp back cases and the highly the fact that judicial review goes back into the 1760s and the highly political nature of it in the 1760s. And then the fact that judicial review is accepted by John Marshall, but the political character of it is rejected, I think is enormously important for contemporary constitutional adjudication. I think the, I think the Supreme Court of the United States may well have made a mistake when it decided Roe against Wade, because there really wasn't a legal basis for it. It was something that large segments of the public wanted. And I probably would have voted for it if I were on the court at that time. It's absolutely clear to me that what the Supreme Court has done in Dobbs, getting rid of Roe against Wade, is a totally political decision that I think will get the court in trouble over time and really tends to corrupt the whole legal system of the United States and make make the public lose faith in the legal system. So I think that this idea that the court should avoid political decision-making, uh, at least most of the time, and keep its nose to the grindstone of the law only is probably the right thing for the court to do. And I think that John Marshall saw that in 1803. He had to see it in 1803. I think he saw that partly because he saw the consequences of political decision-making by judges earlier. Uh, there's a Rhode Island case where uh, the judges are thrown off the bench after they decide a political issue. So what I'm currently working on is uh, trying to get these cases, which I discovered, I mean, the amazing thing is no, nobody knows about these cases or nobody knew about them. You know, These cases that established judicial review prior to yeah, Marbury v. Madison? Yeah, uh, the state cases in the 1780s and 90s, people know about because they're reported decisions. But the stamp back cases, nobody knew about them. I shouldn't say nobody knew about them. In the South Carolina case, for example, somebody in 1905 wrote an article in a history journal. But that journal never circulated among lawyers. Uh, you know, maybe briefly a few lawyers noticed it in the South Carolina History Journal, but it never became, it was just, it was just that audit 1905 like the South Carolina case were just forgotten. And so when I did the uh, the four volumes of the Common Law in Colonial America, of which 
e pluribus unum is a, a summary. Uh, when I did the research for those four volumes, I keep coming across these colonial cases, deciding uh, that the Stamp Act is unconstitutional, that nobody knew about. And what is sad today, although you know people like you were helping with it, is that so much good stuff is published that people can't read it all. So the uh, the four volumes on the common law in colonial America, and for that matter, E Pluribus Unum, have not reached the legal profession. And what I'm working on now is trying to write a series of articles for law reviews that will bring these cases to the attention of the legal profession. You, you mean to say that they... It- They've probably been more read by historians than they've been the legal more profession. read by historians than by lawyers. I mean, an example of this: a a former student of mine is teaching constitutional law now at Cornell Law School, and uh, there was a piece in the New York Times that referred to uh, one of these cases, and he wrote me uh, an email. Uh, congratulating me and I uh and and one of the things the email said is I never knew I never I I learned something about this I never knew that there were cases doing that and I had a conversation with them uh and you know now this is a student of mine who you would think might be paying more attention to what I write than people who are not students of mine he's also a lawyer he's teaching constitutional law and he hadn't read the book. You would think that this is someone who might have, you know, might have read the books. And I've checked with other people, former students, and they haven't read the books. And I understand that. There are a lot of, there are a lot of books that I see that I'd love to read. There just isn't enough time to read all the yeah. stuff being published these days. So when you called and said you wanted to, you know, talk to me about this, wonderful. <laughs> I'm eager to talk. I want, you know, it seems to me that the uh, that the role of law in colonial government generally is something that we should care much more about than we do. And this particular thing about the kind of intrinsically political nature of judicial review, but Marshall's attempt to reject the political ways of using judicial review because as a as as a political matter in deciding Marbury against Madison, he had to reject it. Uh, Marshall's attempt to develop separate categories of law and politics is important. And the argument that that's one of the things he was trying to do in Marbury is much more powerful when one knows about the earlier cases. So you're being very helpful to what is now my, uh, we'll call it scholarly agenda, but it's also a political agenda, an agenda about what the Supreme Court should be doing. My agenda to get the court out of politics, to have it, I mean, and the only way to do it is to have it take itself out of politics. That's currently what I'm interested in doing. And uh, so I I appreciate your help. Uh, I'm certainly happy to have people think about other aspects of the book. I mean, the, uh, 
you know, the other most interesting aspect for me is the, the intensely local character of government in the 18th century. That was an especially interesting part of the book for me as well. When you when you read about that local government and realize that that's the only way things could work, and they could only work that way if the British were willing to compromise. So the Pennsylvania court keeps the soldier in jail. I guess we got one less soldier to fight the French, but we can live with that. And the stupidity of the crown in trying to tax the American colonies. Would we, if the, if the crown had continued in this sort of, it's, it's, it's throughout the 18th century in a kind of compromise mode. Uh, these colonies are very loyal to us. They're part of the empire. They're an important part of the empire. We make a lot of money off them, but we've got to let them do a lot of things by themselves. There was a, all of all of colonial government in the 18th century is a compromise. And I guess another important thing about the book is how well this compromise worked until the crown was no longer willing to compromise and insisted for local political reasons back in England that it had to get some tax money from the colonies. And the colonies just weren't prepared to pay. So let's have a war on independence over it. And England upset the lawyer class yeah. so much in particular. Yeah. So I, I'm a big fan of compromise. I mean, that certainly is another thing that is very troubling to me about current American politics. The uh, the unwillingness of both my friends on the left and people on the right to compromise with each other. Do you have any recommendations you'd want to give for books that would complement this book especially well or emphasize some of the points that you just have been making about compromise and uh, a less political, w whatever you want to recommend. And keeping in mind, I, I will also link to your other works that touch on this as well. Um, Marbury v. Madison, uh, et cetera. There's a book by, by Gordon Wood, Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism and the American Revolution. And Gordon Wood is, I think, the leading scholar of constitutionalism and liberty in, in the revolution and the early uh, American Republic. And this book is kind of a summary of his life's work. He's written a book that uh, is widely known, and I'm forgetting the title of it now. Uh, he's written a number of books, and this is a uh, under 200 page summary of his life's work. And it's a, you know, good, highly readable book. No, that's great. I'll, I'll include that on the show notes so people can check yeah. that out if they want to as well. In addition to your own book, um, wh where can people go to find you if they want to keep up with your ongoing work and projects? Uh, good question. I mean, I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm 83 years old and feel that my body is failing me and I don't know how much more I'm going to do. I mean, the, uh, I clearly can't do the legalist reformation, which is a book on New York, uh, is based on about 400 volumes of New York cases in the court of appeals cases, and then cases in the New York supplement, the lower courts. 
the four volumes of the Common Law and Colonial America are, I, I didn't read everything in colonial, I didn't read every colonial court record that exists. I, I only did about half of Virginia, which is a huge amount of material, a huge amount of material, and came to the conclusion that I wasn't going to see anything different by continuing to read more. I just read more of the same. And I didn't read lower court Connecticut cases. Uh, other than that, I pretty much read 80% of what's there. I just don't have the physical capacity to do that anymore. That's astounding that you did that. Well, I mean, part of uh, one of the huge advantages I had was being on a faculty of a relatively wealthy law school. I mean, I shouldn't say relatively wealthy, a very wealthy law school, not the wealthiest, but a wealthy law school that was very anxious to promote its standing by the scholarship of its faculty. And so I had an enormous amount of support from my dean and from uh, what was known as the research committee, which has the capacity to fund things. And I ended up the last 15 years before I retired, I probably ended up teaching all year long, probably only in two or three of those years. Otherwise, I was teaching, I was able to put all, all the teaching I had to do into one semester and have essentially a total of eight to nine months a year to work to do scholarship. And one of the ways I could do the amount of research I did uh, was that I had that time. Uh, and then if I wanted to go to South Carolina to read stuff in the South Carolina archives, I'd go to the research committee and say, you know, I need plane tickets. I need some money to stay. I don't stay in expensive hotels when I go do research, but I need money to uh, stay in hotels and rent a car while I'm down there. And nobody ever said no. One of the ways I was, a, I mean, I was, I was essentially a, for the last 15 years or so I was teaching, maybe the last 20 years I was teaching, I was essentially a, uh, a, a kind of almost scholar in residence who had uh, the you know, financial support to go off and do research when I needed it. But you took your calling as a scholar very seriously and published over a dozen books and, and as many articles. Other than the minimal amount of teaching that I had to do, and I often didn't pay much attention to it, uh, I didn't do anything else. I mean, a lot of law professors go off and do a lot of very good things. Uh, and I didn't. I just did scholarship. I think that's no longer possible. It wasn't, it wasn't possible 100 years ago, and I think it's not possible anymore. Well, you've done a lot, and it's impressive. I think that's owed largely to the circumstances rather than to me. Okay, I'll accept your modesty. Yeah. No, I, I did believe that if we're going to get essentially pretty cushy jobs, we're not actually required to do much of anything. I just to appear in class maybe six hours a week for a few months. If you're going to get jobs like that, you have an obligation 
to do something else. Right. And so then uh, I think I, you know, I think I have to say two things. One, I really deeply believe in American democratic government as guided by law. And so I wanted to write a lot about that, about where it came from and how it functioned. And you know, I felt a sort of obligation to do that. And as I say, I was, I was able to. I think as far as where to find all the work that you have done, I'm going to include a link to your institutional page, your NYU page, which will have a link to all of your books and articles. I'll include that and I'll include an Amazon link to E Pluribus Unum. And yeah, it so, turns out that uh, everything can still be, everything is still in print in one place or another. Yeah, I haven't finished them, but I, but uh, in addition to this one, I picked up the Legalist Reformation and um, about halfway through the Roots of American Bureaucracy, which I'm really enjoying. That's, I think, I think that's my best book and maybe the most important book. It is a very different view of bureaucracies. I mean, I, I, I see bureaucracy as, I guess, generally, I think that good government finds it hard to do anything. Most of the time, government needs to be there for when we need it. But most of the time, the world is best when government doesn't do very much. And bureaucracy is one of the ways of enabling government to do what is needed but it's also one of the ways of obstructing political leaders from doing what they want to do when it really isn't needed. My guest today has been Bill Nelson, and his book once again is E Pluribus Unum, How the Common Law Helped to Unify and Liberate Colonial America. Bill, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.